a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you're wondering what this little program is about, I mean, on the one hand, it could just be it's a guy sitting behind a microphone, uh, you know, ranting for a little while. And to some people, I'm sure it sounds like that. But if I could uh, just be very blunt, this program and others like it are dedicated to the proposition that uh, thinking clearly and independently, meaning owning your worldview, thinking it through for yourself is superior and a better way to approach life than simply waiting for someone to spoon-feed you the meaning of what it all means. Please tell me, what am I supposed to think about everything? So, with that in mind, I trust you to take whatever information I share with you today, and look, you can either reject it, you can incorporate it, you can take this part that you like and reject this part you don't. That's up to you. But above all, I am inviting you to understand the battle for your mind is real. And it's rare to encounter people. I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday. It's very rare to encounter people who actually think things through for themselves and and pay attention to what's being said. And when they read a a headline, if they see heavily emotion-laden buzzwords, to stop and say, now, why would they use that word when something else could have, have been used? Now, does it require a little bit extra effort? Yes, as a matter of fact, it does. But the result is, you are not a slave to somebody else's worldview. You are not beholden to experts to tell you everything that you need to think or need to do. Now, there may be times the experts actually have the right answer, but you need to be able to trust yourself and think for yourself So if some expert is telling you, hey, I really think the best thing you could do is throw your oldest kid off a cliff, you know, you can you can sit there and reason it out and say, well, here's here's the the upside of that. You know, there won't be as many dirty dishes piling up. Here's the downside. That would be a horrible thing to do. Bottom line is all of us would do better to think for ourselves. So I may not have all the answers, but I am asking plenty of questions and encouraging you to do the same. So, I don't know if you noticed this on the weekend, if you were, if you were out and about, but did you notice how the, the mask enforcement is starting to slow down? I just, I, this caught my attention because I had a friend who had a couple of experiences here in my home state of Utah with uh, Costco and with, there's a, a local chain of grocery stores, Harmons, that uh, <clears throat> have been extremely aggressive in their mask enforcement. And I don't just mean like, you know, somebody will, will say, hey, where's your mask? I mean, like, they'll chase you down. They will, they will come after you. And uh, this, this friend was telling me at, at Costco, he had, you know, some young guy with, the, with, the, with his first taste of authority still on his tongue come up there and, as he was uh, doing self-checkout and tell him, don't you even think about putting that card into that reader until you put your mask over your face. And to my friend's credit, he just simply quietly stared at the guy as he slid the credit card into the credit card reader. And then the guy grabbed his card as he started to, to go away. Don't you think about taking another step until you put that mask on. And at this point, my friend said, look, what are you, are you holding me against my will? 
my business here is concluded. I've purchased, I've, I've finished, I'm just ready to go. Are you holding me against my will? And as uh, Mr. Young and buff and full of authority thought about that for a moment, my friend just took his cart and, and headed for the exit and left. Now, I understand. These are exceptional cases. Not everybody's like that. Some people are very pleasant, and oftentimes they don't have a lot of say. Corporate, you know, says this is how we got to do it. There's a video circulating, actually, of uh, actor Ricky Schroeder. I'm sorry, he goes by Rick Schroeder now. Ricky was when he was a kid. But uh, he was going to a a California Costco. Excuse me. And having a conversation with, uh, with one of the managers there and one of the people there at the door, And, you know, I mean, some people are just, well, you're just trying to stay relevant as an actor. But he raises a good point, and that is all these other Costco's. And by the way, the Costco's here where I live in Utah, they've dropped the mask mandate. You will not be hassled if you go in there not wearing a mask. They'll assume that you are vaccinated or whatever, you know, the CDC says, fully vaccinated people need not wear masks. That's cool. But this particular California Costco... The, the worker proudly, I couldn't see if he clicked his heels, but if he didn't, he missed a good opportunity, proudly said, here at Costco, we go above and beyond the law to follow the directions and follow the rules. <laughs> I was just like, oh, my word. What a fine camp guard this guy would have made. No thinking, no, no processing, just, I have authority and I must use it to stop you. <laughs> so uh, Rick Schroeder got his uh, membership back and, uh, you know, refunded to him and was urging other people, do it. So I, I'm willing to forgive Costco. I have stayed away for the most part for this last year or so. I've only gone on a couple of occasions. But, uh, you know, at least, at least there's, there's a little bit of, of sanity starting to return. I don't know how Harmon's is. Harmon's was, was very aggressive. Like, I probably will never go there again in my life. Just, just because I, I felt like, wow, they, they were such friends of freedom at one time. They, they actually helped stop a, a tax initiative or a tax raise that uh, the legislature was looking at. Harmon's, you know, lent their considerable clout to that. But then, you know, when there's just a little bit of fear, wow, they showed some, some colors that I'm, I'm not really comfortable with. So here's the, here's the bottom line. The masks are beginning to come off. This was the first Sunday I've sat in church for a long time where actually the masked versus the unmasked was almost 50-50. And I'm not trying to play the victim here, but I'll tell you, there were times where it was, you know, I I was one of the only people in the whole congregation not wearing a mask. Or maybe it would be me and, and my neighbor or, you know, me and a couple of my kids. And I never did it for a political statement. It was just, I just... If I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be coerced into wearing a mask because I think there's something more than just simply, you know, this is protecting the public. I feel like there's a test to see how far will we go. Now, nationally, Trader Joe's has been one of the more aggressive chains in mask enforcement. I'm looking at an article here from Alan Stevo that I found on LouRockwell.com earlier this morning, and it says for more than a year. Trader Joe's has been particularly a, a particularly troubling store for some readers of these pages. He says Trader Joe's has some excellent quality products at a consumer-friendly price with a quirky corporate style. What's not to like about such a place? But he says when Corona communism was implemented after the Ides of March 2020, we saw exactly what was not to like about such a place. 
Trader Joe's became one of many private companies that enforced the terrible one-size-fits-all health mandates, including the CDC's April 3, 2020 face mask order, the single most powerful tool of 2020. Alan Stevo says the very concept of private property is further perverted when such behavior takes place as private companies enforce illegitimate government edicts. But it didn't stop there. Through participation in trade organizations, the executives of Trader Joe's and other companies called for even more stringent across-the-board policies from government. They didn't just enable, they didn't just enforce, they didn't just encourage, they demanded more tyranny. Now, to the credit of Trader Joe's, their corporate policy always left room for individual exemptions among customers. However, in practice, this was very difficult to invoke. The Trader Joe's horror stories are legion and some of the worst of the past year. In some locations, a customer practically had to have a law degree to get their face mask exemption policy honored. The easy, breezy, decentralized corporate style of Trader Joe's quickly devolved to utter tyranny as managers were more likely to follow the directives of the CNN Chiron than the actual corporate policy. In fact, Alan Stevo says, the once friendly crew member, who always gave you an extra big smile at checkout, was suddenly a mask Nazi of the tallest order. And he says, I mean it when I say Nazi. A defining characteristic of Nazism was the fusion of state and corporate power. Nazis needed corporate cooperation for their efforts to take hold, just as the corona communists of the Ides of March of 2020 did. He says executives at Trader Joe's overwhelmingly looked the other way as stores enacted the most preposterous policies. Example, an employee polling other customers on whether a medically exempt customer looked like someone who should be medically exempt from a mask and then inciting customers to corner and angrily confront the unmasked shopper about that. I remember seeing this video. This kind of sick behavior was happening to grandmothers. And Alan Stevo asks, who could possibly justify an employee cornering a shopper in the spices section and gathering together an angry mob of customers? Now, we'll come back to this article in a few moments. There's just a couple more thoughts here from Alan Stevo. But the bottom line is the first cracks in the armor have appeared And I'm not going to pretend, well, and therefore it's it's all over, everything's back to normal, everything is good. No, this is kind of the dangerous place because the people who thrive on this kind of authoritarianism, they see that power slipping through their fingers. That can make them desperate. And that means you and I need to be very careful and very thoughtful about how we approach this. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. This program is made possible by great sponsors, which you will find listed on my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for May 17th, 2021. And our sponsors include pure-light.com, also hslammo.com, and monticellocollege.org. So I'm sharing this article here from Alan Stevo on lewrockwell.com. This is about how we won Trader Joe's. That was the first crack in the armor. This is regarding mask mandates. He talks about how in April of 2020, he sent a strongly worded letter on the topic of... <clears throat> 
<clears throat> excuse me, this rampant abuse of customers to Trader Joe's CEO, Daniel Bain. And Alan Stevo says, just to make sure the letter was not ignored, my team and I followed up that letter with a press release further pointing to Trader Joe's illegal and unethical discrimination. Now, it's the job of corporate communications departments to take note of the chatter about their company in the media and online. In such an environment, press releases can be a helpful exclamation point on a sentence that needs to be spoken with emphasis. Don't tread on us. He says, if done right, both the CEO's office and the communications team end up going frantically through the company, figuring out how to address those concerns. Well, he says this particular press release was picked up and reprinted by at least 109 media sources that day. The Trader Joe's communications team probably noticed. Starting the very next day, the toughest Trader Joe's stores in the country stopped their ridiculous levels of radical enforcement. More than a year's worth of the most unceasing behavior, unceasing awful behavior toward uh, customers was literally stopped overnight. In fact, he says it was so rampant that I used to receive several complaints about Trader Joe's some, some weeks. As of April 30th, more than two weeks ago, he says, I haven't received a single new complaint. And this is not only what I was observing through correspondence, but my team and I have folks patrolling the world as health freedom inspectors, keeping an eye on tyrannical corporate enforcement of illegitimate government policy. Alan Stevo says, these health freedom inspectors reported similar results. And additionally, he says, I myself am constantly out testing techniques and probing for cracks in the system. And he says, I firsthand observed an absolute night and day shift on April 30th, repeatedly confirmed in the days thereafter. So his point is, he says, I think we had their attention. In the days ahead, I I encouraged people to reach out to the Trader Joe's CEO at his personal email address as follow-up to the letter. Hundreds of readers of these pages did that. That activity peaked with some 300 emails being sent to the CEO on a single day. That was last Thursday, May 13th. And Alan Stevo says he was CC'd or blind carbon copied on about 100 of them. Now, he says this wasn't sent to info at Trader Joe's. This was sent to the CEO. 300 emails to a single inbox can be hard to ignore. And he says what I wouldn't have given to be a fly on the wall. I think the date he gave earlier on April 29th, 2020, I think he actually was talking April 29th of this year. Bottom line, though. He says, the next morning on Friday, May 14th, 2021, Trader Joe's publicly altered their policy. They dropped all face mask mandates for customers. And to save face, they claimed a CDC guidance from the previous day about vaccines and face masks. They claimed they would only allow entrance to unmasked customers who had been vaccinated, a detail that they publicly have stated they will not be checking for. In other words, they crumbled. Now, Alan Stevo says, I knew they were weak, these tyrants. I knew these orders were getting ready to crumble, but I didn't realize exactly how weak they were. They're very weak, and the proper response to weakness from an enemy of freedom is to fight all the harder until they look back at 2020 and say, I am never going to try that again. Despite the corporate spin and gobbledygook, the truth of the matter is this. He says, on May 14th, 2021, you and I who have long been fighting in this ways, both big and small, won a decisive victory as we took down the Trader Joe's face mask order. We left Trader Joe's with no other alternative. We made them an offer they couldn't refuse. Dozens of companies immediately followed. This is a huge victory, and he says it cannot stop here. 
Trader Joe's plans to leave their employees masked. They also plan to keep their only the vaccinated can be unmasked policy in place on paper. Now, if allowed to remain in place, it will only be a matter of time before it returns with a vengeance. The next time it's enforced, we shouldn't expect it to be as generous and easy to defeat as it was this time. Therefore, he says we must stop the forced masking of Trader Joe's employees and we must remove all mention of any government-advised health mandate as a condition of entering a business. Alan Stevo says it's not the place of government to place health mandates on us, and it is certainly not the right of corporations to enforce such illegitimate abuses of government power on us. It is illegitimate abuse of government power no matter who enforces it, your neighbor, your grocer, your child's school, your mailman, or your own mother. So what he's saying is we have to redouble our efforts. Time is of the essence, he says. We have a very short window of opportunity to defeat these one-size-fits-all health mandates. The annual flu season will begin in late September. Respiratory virus-related illnesses and deaths will increase, and the fear campaign will intensify. Standard deaths that take place every year from respiratory viruses will be blamed on something scary. Vaccine deaths will be blamed on something scary and will certainly not be blamed on vaccines. In other words, he says, we'll have quite a fight on our hands. But if these one-size-fits-all approaches are still with us and normalized in September 2021, Then he says there will be no stopping them. They will be with us for a very long time, and we really will have entered the new normal. We must return society to normal by the end of this summer, or we risk losing society as we once knew it. We must roll society back far before 2019 to regain freedoms we once were certain were gone forever, and we must let no vestige of 2020 remain. That's the work, he says, is ahead of us. That is the work we need accomplished immediately and by September 2021 at the latest. For if we do not, he says, we will go into a far more pernicious battle for our civilization and we will be doing so with the forces of freedom so grossly unprepared. That's something we cannot let happen. Now, he asks you to sign up at his website and there's a link in the article here. And he says, I will enlist you in helping me take down these orders. He says, in signing up, you will be joining an army of activists. This army of activists who read my work, who were so responsive, and who hit Trader Joe's hard and repeatedly, made such a difference in shifting this policy. But he says, we have much more work ahead of us. Then he says, I need you to share this article. With literally 20 minutes of work a day from a dedicated minority taking targeted action, we can take down these orders. He says, if you need pointers on how not to wear a mask ever again, read my best-selling Face Masks in One Lesson. If you'd like similar writing free of charge, check out my LewRockwell.com writing on the topic. But he says, really what it comes down to is insisting in your own life that you will live by a higher standard. That's what saying no to the mask amounts to. He says, we can do this. We are winning. They are desperate. Victory is at hand, and now we must close on our victory. So he says, if you're a closer, I need you. Who's with me? Again, you'll find the link at thebrianhideshow.com. Today's show notes for May 17th, 2021. This is Alan Stevo's comment, or column rather, of uh, We Won Trader Joe's, the first crack in the armor. Now, I'm going to shift gears here. We're going to break away in just a moment, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the lessons learned, or, well, what worked and what didn't work, in addressing pandemic concerns over the past 15 months. I have paid very close attention to the American Institute for Economic Research. AIER.org has been 
a wonderful source of information. And one of the things I like about them is they're not partisan. This isn't, well, this is good because Fauci said it, or this is bad because Trump said it, or vice versa. You know, it's, it's not based in partisanship. These are economists and historians and analysts who will crunch the numbers. They can give you a pretty solid idea of what worked and what didn't over the past 15 months. Here's the crazy thing. John Tamney's article here points out the most obvious lesson of all was that restricting freedom did not defeat COVID. Oh, I hope you'll want to hear more. We'll get back to it just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Look, I am really sorry. I have to apologize if you're a longtime listener. I know I'm sounding like a broken record because there's a lot of COVID stuff that's being talked about, but I hope you can appreciate, you can see and feel the shift that is taking place right now. I don't know how this is all going to shake out, but I know that uh, this is not the time to sit down and say, okay, our work here is done. You know, some of the masks are coming off. Everything is great. I agree with uh, Alan Stevo that uh, this is the time to really commit and dig in and make sure that we, we seal the victory. Because if we don't, it's, it's a certainty. We're going to see some of the ugly things that we've seen in the last 15 months come back and possibly be revisited on us in even more harsh ways simply because that's when, when, when you think the state is the tool to solve your problems, you know, force is the one thing that the state can bring to the table that other organizations or institutions cannot. And if enough force didn't do it the first time, well, then we'll have to get more forceful and more brutal and, you know, start treating people like that uh, Canadian pastor that was just arrested. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, not only was he arrested by a SWAT team a little over a week ago, that was pretty chilling and ugly to see in and of itself. But apparently uh, Saturday night, arsonists tried to burn his home down. Yeah. Nobody can say that guy has no skin in the game. I, I would say he's... He's one of the very principled people out there, but wow, what a price. So let's talk for a moment about how restricting freedom didn't defeat COVID. This is from John Tamney from the American Institute for Economic Research. And he starts by suggesting, let's travel back in time to March of 2020, when predictions of mass death related to the new coronavirus started to gain currency. One study conducted by Imperial College's Neil Ferguson indicated U.S. deaths alone would exceed 2 million. Now, he says the above number is often used, even by conservatives and libertarians, as justification for the initial lockdowns. We knew so little is the excuse, and with so many deaths expected, can anyone blame local, state, and national politicians for panicking? John Tamney says the answer is a resounding yes. To see why, imagine if Ferguson had predicted 30 million American deaths. Imagine the fear among the American people then, which is precisely the point. The more threatening a virus is presumed to be, the more superfluous the government force is. Really, who needs to be told to be careful if a failure to take precautions could reasonably result in death? 
Death predictions aside, the other justification brooded in March of 2020 was that brief lockdowns, two weeks was the number often thrown around, would flatten the hospitalization curve. In this case, the taking of freedom allegedly made sense as a way of protecting hospitals from a massive inflow of sick patients they wouldn't have been able to handle and that would have resulted in a public health catastrophe. Such a view similarly vandalizes reason. Think about it. Who needs to be forced to avoid behavior that might result in hospitalization? Better yet, who needs to be forced to avoid behavior that might result in hospitalization at a time when doctors and hospitals would be so short-staffed as to not be able to take care of admitted patients? Translated for those who need it, the dire predictions made over a year ago about the corona horrors that awaited us don't justify the lockdowns. Rather, they should remind the mildly sentient among us of how cruel and pointless they were. The common sense that we are, to varying degrees, born with, along with our genetic predisposition to survive, dictates that a fear of hospitalization or death would have caused Americans to take virus avoidance precautions that would well have exceeded any rules foisted on them by politicians. To which some will reply with something along the lines of, well, not everyone has common sense. In truth, there are a lot of dumb, low-information types out there who would have disregarded all the warnings. Lockdowns weren't necessary for the wise among us. Rather, they were essential precisely because there are so many who aren't wise. And for this, to this point, John Tamney says, actually, that response is the best argument of all against lockdowns. He says, indeed, it can't be stressed enough that low-information types are the most crucial people of all during periods of uncertainty precisely because they'll be unaware of, misunderstand, or reject the warnings of the experts. Their actions will produce essential information that the rule followers never could. In not doing what the allegedly wise among us will, low-information citizens will, by their contrarian actions, teach us what behavior is most associated with avoidance of sickness and death, and more important, what behavior is associated with it. Now, John Tamney says one-size-fits-all decrees from politicians don't enhance health outcomes as much as they blind us to the actions or lack thereof that would protect us the most, or not. Freedom on its own is a virtue, and it provides crucial information. But some, some will say, well, how elitist to let some people act as guinea pigs for the rest of us. And he says such a statement is naive. Heroin and cocaine are illegal, but people still use both. And thank goodness they do. How could we know what threatens us and what doesn't without the rebellious? Still, there's the question of elitism. The lockdowns were the cruelest form of elitism by far, of elitism by far, rather. The implication of the lockdowns was that those who had the temerity to have jobs that were destinations like restaurants and shops would have to lose them. The lockdowns destroyed tens of millions of destination jobs, destroyed or severely impaired millions of businesses, not to mention the hundreds of millions around the world who were rushed into starvation, poverty, or both as a consequence of nail-biting politicians in countries like the U.S. that chose to take a break from reality. Talk about elitist actions. The very idea of wrecking the economy as a virus mitigation strategy will go down in history as one of the most abjectly stupid policy responses the world has ever endured. And he says that's the case, because economic growth is easily the biggest enemy death and disease have ever known, while poverty is easily the biggest killer. Economic growth produces the resources necessary so that doctors and scientists can come up with answers to what needlessly sickens us or shortens our lives altogether. For instance, in the 19th century, 
a broken femur brought with it a one out of three chance of death. Well, those lucky enough to survive the break had only one option, amputation. A child born in the 19th century had as good a chance of dying as living. A broken hip was a death sentence. Cancer most certainly was. But most didn't die of cancer because tuberculosis and pneumonia got them first. So what happened? Why don't we get sick or die as easily as we used to? And the answer is economic growth. Business titans like Johns Hopkins and John D. Rockefeller created enormous wealth, only to direct a lot of it toward medical science. And what used to kill us became yesterday's news. Even though freedom is its own wondrous virtue, even though freedom produces essential information that protects us, and even though free people produce the resources without which diseases kill with sickening rapidity, panicky politicians erased it in 2020 on the supposition that personal and economic desperation was the best solution for a spreading virus. John Tamney says historians will marvel at the abject stupidity of the political class in 2020. Pretty crazy stuff. By the way, I don't know if you were aware of this, but uh, Merriam-Webster has uh, changed its definition of anti-vaxxer. That's kind of an epithet. I mean, I see this on social media all the time. Ah, you're one of those anti-vaxxers. And, you know, all you have to do is just question, is, is this vaccine really as safe? Has it, has it been proven? You know, is this going to be like Vioxx, you know, that also was approved by the FDA, but then had to be recalled because it was killing people? Fen-Fen, anybody remember that stuff? That had FDA approval as well. Crazy. There's an article here from uh, National Review that asks, are you now or have you ever been an anti-vaxxer? And you know, the chances are high if you're using Merriam-Webster's definition of the term, which includes a person who opposes vaccination vaccination or laws that mandate vaccination. So, I didn't know I was an anti-vaxxer, but I'm definitely opposed to laws that mandate it. And apparently their definition is, uh, you know, something they've, they've just added to. So, you know, to make sure people know that, uh, you know, you, you anti-vaxxers, need to stay on the margins of society. Now, for a lot of people, that's enough. You know, the threat of being called names or at least encountering disapproval, that's enough to keep them in check. So I'm, I'm including a link to Paul Rosenberg's essay, Call Me Pisher, which explains the liberating power of losing our fear of labels as well as losing the fear of the disapproval of others. And I'm going to tell you right now, Paul's, Paul's a great guy. He does not... Uh, he doesn't use coarse language or, you know, um, shocking imagery. But in this one, he comes right out and tells you. When someone says, call me Pisher, they're, they're using an old Yiddish statement. A Pisher is a person who pees their pants, an adult who is, you know, too dumb to not pee themselves. But the idea behind that saying is when someone starts to threaten, well, you know, we may just have to think of you as some kind of anti-vaxxer, the correct response is, call me Pisher, meaning... I don't care what you call me. You're pushing buttons that are connected to nothing, and this is where you can start to stand up for yourself. Now, I know it sounds scary, because sometimes people will really, you know, try to put the guilt on you and try to label you and silence you through that guilt by association. It is one of the most liberating things that you can do to lose that fear of losing someone else's approval. This is why I talk about you got to be willing to own your own worldview. And losing that fear of labels is a big part of it. Try it. It's really liberating.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention again that uh, I have links to all of the different articles mentioned in today's show notes. These are the show notes for May 17th, 2021. And I think you'll find a lot of good reading. Paul Rosenberg's essay, Call Me Pisher, totally worth your time. If you can find the courage to, to not need other people's approval, you will become much more free and much more happy. Something I saw over the weekend, too, this was this was a little bit disturbing. And that is, uh, you know, that people are always questioning things on social media. And I get it. You know, it's, I think that's a good place, actually, in some ways to hash out some of the differences of opinion. You know, often it devolves into purse swinging, but there are times where people actually have productive discussions, and, and I like to see that happen. But you've got to be able to have free expression. You've got to be able to say what you want to say. And uh, I think it was uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, was making a comment about how uh, the, the social media giants need to step up their efforts to squash misinformation, to, to prevent misinformation from reaching the public. And here's, what, here's the thing that makes that so creepy. Number one, you have the White House press secretary, presumably on the orders of the White House, advocating for, you guys need to help us censor points of view that uh, go against whatever the popular narrative is. Okay, that's pretty disturbing. And it's something that obviously many of the social media or big tech giants have been very willing to do. But the other part is there's an implied threat in what Jen Psaki was saying, meaning, you know, you social media and and uh, big tech people, you need to step up, and there's an implied or else. Well, what is the or else? Or else we're going to regulate you even harder. I mean, how many times have Zuckerberg and company sat before Congress testifying before various committees? It seems to be happening more and more regularly. And I don't like the idea of government putting pressure on them. We need you to do our dirty work and make sure that unapproved opinions are not being expressed. So I saw this piece from Robert E. Wright on the American Institute for Economic Research's website. This is on free expression. And I wanted to just share a couple of quick excerpts here. He says, the title is a double entendre, meant as both a synonym for the noun phrase free speech and as a normative claim regarding a declarative statement like policymakers should free expression from unnecessary constraints. Free willy, of course, but also free expression. Now, Robert E. Wright says, President Biden was not quite right when he claimed that no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. The First Amendment simply recognizes Americans' absolute natural right to express themselves freely without fear of government interference, be it direct or indirect through corporate regulation. People who understand the Constitution, the gist of Anglo-American jurisprudence, and John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, distinguish between the right to use a tool, be it words or firearms, and the uses to which that tool are put. So, contrapotus. He says one may and indeed should yell fire in a crowded theater if indeed the theater is aflame. Restrictions against yelling fire where no flame exists, though, aren't about limiting freedom of expression per se, but are rather about the tort, the damages caused to others through the credible utterance of a false claim. Similarly, outlawing fraud isn't about banning certain speech. It's about criminalizing the damages that fraudsters inflict on their victims. And victims they are. 
due to what economists call asymmetric information. The theatergoer and the customer cannot readily know which claims of fire or, f- are, or fire sale are credible and which are not. So some state protection is merited. In other words, context is crucial. Courts have generally upheld the notion that businesses can make broad claims about their business prowess. Some companies even assert in their very names that they are the top company, whatever that means, in their field or region, but may not make specific promises about the efficacy, particularly the long-term efficacy of certain products. Consumers cannot cheaply assess the latter claims, but they can the former by relying on brand reputations, guarantees, ratings, rebates, reviews, samples, word of mouth, and so forth when making purchasing decisions. So, contra the New York Times, politicians have a First Amendment right to say what they want. Only the costs, of their, the costs their claims create can be constrained constitutionally. And those are generally minimal because nobody in their right mind takes political pronouncements at face value. In their role as voters, in their role as consumers, Americans need no protection from general political claims so long as an open marketplace for information and ideas exists. What Americans do need to be protected from are sitting politicians and bureaucrats with superior information about the causes and consequences of events and policies. That's why so many people, left and right, push for more transparency via Freedom of Information Acts, body cams. By the way, why do we limit them to police? government data integrity laws, and the like, and why many also see a dire need for more personal accountability for policymakers and bureaucrats. So he says kudos to Eric Adams for promising to protect himself should he become New York City's next mayor. In short, Robert E. Wright says each American must decide independently the merits of competing claims. Just as the Americans must be allowed to decide whether to spend scarce dollars on products A through Z, lest market have no meaning, they must be allowed to decide independently whether to spend their scarce votes on D or I, L or R, lest democracy lose its meaning. Robert E. Wright says if Americans can no longer discern high from low quality information because the education system has failed to nurture their natural proclivities for independent thought, then the educational system must be improved, not freedom of expression limited. One of the most disturbing trends in his almost 30-year higher ed career was the slow erosion of academic freedom and free expression in our universities, the very institutions that were supposed to best foster independent inquiry. Freedom of expression has deteriorated to such a degree in U.S. higher education that leading academics left and right have recently formed the Academic Freedom Alliance, or AFA, to push back on campus cancel culture and heavy-handed administrators with key books on the importance of free expression and op-eds and other forms of publicity. The membership of the Great Barrington Declaration co-author Jay Bhattacharya and other esteemed scientists makes one hopeful as does the impressive list of top economists and political science and policy professors who've signed on. Most impressive of all, he says, are the working attorneys who've joined the movement. May quality lawsuits come as fast and furious as the movie franchise. But with non-radical professors virtually extinct in many fields, including history and sociology, many of the few remaining ones have been driven out in recent years through nefarious practices recently exposed by the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal the intellectual diversity required to imbue the habits of truly independent thought remains elusive. 
With university enrollment still plummeting, America may have to start over, if not from scratch, then at least with a parallel system that embraces free expression, rather than squelching it. So nonprofits like the AFA, the Martin Center, and big think tanks could play a bigger role in the revivification of academic freedom and freedom of expression more generally. As AFA notes, an attack on academic freedom anywhere is an attack on academic freedom everywhere. Employment law, though, poses uh, regulatory barriers at larger institutions, especially ones with support staff, administrators, and even board members who may not understand or support each institution's unique mission. He says many employment regulations strive to reduce harms caused that can be caused by asymmetric information and especially asymmetric power. But again, it's not the speech per se that's rightly restricted. It's the harms caused by speech that leads to coerced quid pro quo arrangements or breaches of of fiduciary trust. But rigid compliance with employment law can also have a chilling effect on the open discussion of ideas necessary to advance understanding of complex social issues. He asks, how can one evaluate the relative merits of policy alternatives regarding, say, gender or religious discrimination if researchers fear for their jobs for even broaching the topic? Obviously, researchers at policy institutions need an institutional and or physical space analogous to the uh, to the college classroom or the faculty lounge where they can ask questions, bounce ideas off others, and share findings without fear of retribution. They need the equivalent of an intellectual salon where hypotheses can be broached and and assessed by their peers on their empirical and logical merits. And to avoid abuse, a modern workplace salon should be firewalled from regular HR restrictions by meeting in a special place at specific hours so it's clear to all that any views expressed are for discussion purposes, to advance the understandings, the understanding of conversance. Like Vegas, what happens in a salon should stay in a salon if it is to aid the institution's mission-crucial intellectual purposes. In sum, he says, the Constitution doesn't express human rights, it, or expresses human rights rather than grants them. The rights, especially the cognate ones expressed in the first two amendments, provide equal access to important tools and are without limit. Government can punish those found after due process to have willfully abused tools like speech or firearms to the detriment of others, but it cannot constitutionally limit the availability of such crucial tools simply because some people might use them to cause harm. Again, check out this article. It's in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I hope you'll check it out. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.